Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Heidi Campbell about her great book, When Religion Meets New Media. What does religion have to do with technology? Many people think that religious practitioners are inherently opposed to new technological developments. The reality of the situation is that religious communities have a very complex relationship with technology. Heidi Campbell examines the intersection of religion and technology in When Religion Meets New Media. Her main query is what responses do Jewish, Christian, and Muslim communities have to new forms of media? Campbell pinpoints the various structural components of religious communities' engagement with technologies through a number of case studies and mini-ethnographies including the Amr Khalid phenomena, the Gulen movement, Shabbat in an Orthodox Jewish home, the Pause, its prayer time ad campaign, the Anglican Cathedral and Second Life, Islamic apps, and the kosher cell phone. In When Religion Meets New Media, Campbell offers a comprehensive theoretical model for investigating religion in the digital world, the religious social shaping approach which frames a study in a religious community's core beliefs and patterns, history and tradition, negotiation process, and communal discursive framing. As one of the leading scholars in the area of religion, media, and digital culture, Campbell is well-suited for this task. In our conversation, we discuss the history of religion online, religious authority, communal interactions with traditional texts, the media as conduit, mode of knowing, and social institution, and the future of the study of digital religion. Campbell also gives us a sense of where the field is moving and topics that are gaining purchase among scholars. Her efforts with the Network for New Media, Religion, and Digital Culture Studies are helping scholars across disciplines connect for collaborative research. We also briefly discuss one of the products of this network, Campbell's edited collection, Digital Religion, Understanding Religious Practice in New Media Worlds. The chapters of this volume include theoretical and methodological introductions to themes in the study of digital religion, with two corresponding case studies. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with Heidi Campbell about her great book, When Religion Meets New Media. Um, Good morning, Heidi. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for um, taking some time to talk to us. Uh, This is really a wonderful book. And you're you're really not only introducing many of us who study religion uh, to this this really important subfield, um, but you also really set their trajectory, I think, for for much of the research which uh, will come in this field. So uh, it's a wonderful book, and and thank you for for writing it, and thank you for talking with us. Before we get into uh, some of the the details, and you you give us a number of great case studies to examine uh, this field in the book. Could, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, you, you, I think you probably have a different background than a lot of people that I've interviewed before. 
Um, so maybe you could tell us uh, how you got interested in religion and particularly new media and um, if there's particular people that have been influential in how you approach religion. All right. Well, my name is Heidi Campbell, and I'm Associate Professor of Communication at Texas A&M University. And I started out my, um, originally my education was in communications and um, journalism, and I was hoping to uh, grow up to be a foreign correspondent in the Middle East. And so I did some uh, work in Washington, D.C., stringing for a couple newspapers from my home state of Michigan, as well as um, working for Christianity Today magazine and a few other news outlets. Um, but as time wore on, I um, transitioned back to, to Michigan and transitioned not just doing journalistic work, but doing kind of some corporate development work and looking at how communication plays a role in just conflict and um, negotiation. And then the opportunity emerged for me to go to um, graduate school, and I'd always wanted to study kind of media ethics. And I applied for this research program at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And uh, uh, and actually, at the time when I applied, I didn't actually look really closely at the application of what school I was applying to. So I was slightly surprised when I got there to find out that I would, had just um, agreed to do a master's in theology at the University of Edinburgh. Um, but that was a really great experience for, because it was my first really interdisciplinary um, encounter of mixing kind of media studies and communication studies with theological ethics and Christian um, ethics as well. And so I finished my master's in 1996, and it was actually during my master's, which um, my master's thesis was looking at, at um, how um, – the tension between journalists' um, understandings of, you know, especially charismatic phenomena and how religious uh, practitioners reported on that and the tensions that often per, um, come, come about in um, news reporting and stories. Uh, but as part of my master's degree, I did an a, a paper on virtual communities and how virtual communities were emerging in the mid-1990s and what impact that might have on the church. So when the opportunity emerged to do graduate work at the University of Edinburgh, I jumped at the opportunity. And when I was trying to think about, you know, where would I want to focus my energies and understanding, um, especially because a, a UK PhD is, is completely research-based, you know, I thought, the Internet, I think that might be around for a while. I think that would be something interesting <laughs> to study. So I began working um, and looking at just the rise of, communities online, so how people were using, you know, bulletin board services, email systems, which was the kind of main technology of the 90s, and even websites to build communities, especially Christian communities, and how that impacted their relationships and with their offline faith communities as well. And so um, you know, in this work, I had to kind of become fluent in the sociology of technology literature. I had to kind of become fluent in what was called computer-mediated communications at the time, as well as kind of practical theology and Christian ethics to look at the implications. So um, my first book was really looking at the exploring of religious communities online and their impact on um, church communities and institutions. So really kind of I did a lot of online ethnography. I did a lot of comparative work between different religious uh, different Christian traditions. Um, I did both um, uh, participant observation online and I did participant observation in a lot of these people's offline communities and talked to their families and pastors. So it was a, a really kind of unique and, and rich study of just trying to understand digital culture. But after getting done with that project um, and moving toward postdoc work, I decided that I wanted to kind of connect not just what I saw online with kind of maybe some of the trends I was beginning to see offline. And so, um, you know, when religion meets new media is, is 
a comparative study between Jewish, Muslim, and Christian communities' uses of technology and looking not just at what's happening online, but really seeing how offline communities and traditions are responding to the challenges of new technologies and new media culture. Now, um, we, we have two kind of big, big words here in the title that probably – we should uh, situate, and you do a really good job of, of, of situating your work within the kind of context of the field more generally uh, throughout the book. Um, so, h- how are you? Uh, what do you What do you mean by religion when you're when you're talking about uh, religion meeting new media? Well, for me, um, in, in this book specifically, when I mean religion, I'm looking at kind of religious communities um, and their negotiation in contemporary society. So when, when I talk about, um, in the beginning of the book, I talk about kind of, there's, you know, for, for me, there's four different ways to approach religion. We can look at religion in the context of a tradition, um, of the kind of family of beliefs and communities that associate with a certain kind of worldview and understanding of transcendence. There can be um, official religion, which is looking at not just the general um, tradition, but looking at specific groups and institutions tied to um, a particular identity and looking at especially the differences between of those communities or groups within a particular tradition. And then there's also looking at trends of you know lived religion, how people actually negotiate their practices in, in culture, or implicit religion, how secular practices get endued with um, religious significance. And so for this book, I'm looking um, at um, really official religion. So I'm looking at um, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian, but specific groups. And I'm trying to get the argument that um, if we want to understand how um, religious communities negotiate their use of new media, we need to pay attention to a number of key factors. And one of them is, is recognizing that even within a, one tradition, uh, there might be religious groups due to their theology, to their background, and a number of factors which I flesh out in the book that might dictate a very different response to media. Um, and actually, they may have more alignment with other groups outside their tradition than actually groups inside their tradition because of the, those history and background. And so really looking at in a, a specific groups negotiation within a larger tradition. And then uh, probably what most listeners might need more help with is this idea of new media. Um, can, you, can you give us an idea of what exactly is new media? You kind of lay out a number of characteristics of, of new media. Um, what, what does that look like? So new media is a term that really um, started to kind of emerge and get bounced around in um, – media studies and communication circles in the kind of uh, early 2000s um, as a way to kind of distinguish between the rise of digital technologies and older forms of mass media. So, you know, if old media were your more um, broadcast-oriented technologies that were um, more fixed, they had a lot of professional boundaries as well as technological boundaries, which meant you had to have a lot of training to to get a hold of these technologies and utilize them as well as um, economic resources. And again, um, whether they be radio, newspapers, television, film, they're more of a broadcast medium. So, you know, there was one person or groups trying to get their message out to many people. But with the digital transition and even the digitizing of of older technology, what we see is that many of those barriers to entry were eliminated. So new media represents this move toward tech uh, to media that is, instead of a one-to-many broadcast model, a many-to-many interaction. So the idea 
uh, what Henry Jenkins calls that, you know, we've all become prosumers. So new media allows us not just to consume information and technology, but to produce simultaneously. So digital platforms usually don't require as much um, professional knowledge in order to use them. Um, There is much more flexibility in that. Um, They're they're highly interactive rather than just consumption-oriented. And so these are some of the characteristics that delineate kind of this shift from a mass media kind of culture and technology to new media culture and technology. Um, Another, I think, uh, kind of important question that you bring up in the introduction uh, is the general perception of the relationship between religion or religious communities and technology uh, or even uh, religion and science. Can can you give us a little bit of uh, perspective on that? Yeah. One of the key... um, Assumptions or kind of stereotypes I often run up against when I talk to people, um, especially journalists and, and media outlets, about my research. So the assumption is that if you're a religious community, you're highly conservative, you probably have a negative or fraught relationship with modernity, and so you're going to be inherently anti-technology because it's going to go against your values or just be problematic. And what I found is that even in some of the most conservative religious groups within Judaism, Christianity, and so on, that actually most communities don't completely reject media and technology. But what you do see is a very sophisticated, um, sometimes it's um, uh, obvious and sometimes it's actually behind the scenes, but this negotiation process related to their use of technology. So rather than rejecting technology, religious groups are anything from early adopters to latent adopters of technology, but the way they use it, how they use it, and how especially they culture it is really in line with their religious values. So really you know, trying to um, address some of these kind of assumptions that people have about religion um, and technology as being this fraught relationship. Of course, there are a lot of examples, but even the groups that you know we think reject technology, actually what they do is resist different aspects of technology rather than being a, a, a full-out rejection. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate as someone who's not in this field uh, but very interested in it is throughout the book you really kind of give us a clear methodology, clear theoretical boundaries of, of, of how we should approach this topic or how we should think about it. Um, and one of, one of the important things that you kind of focus on is this idea of contextualization. And um, maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of idea about uh, how you think we should contextualize things. You, you give us three things. You talk about um, – the negotiation of religious communities with media um, revolve around core communal beliefs and practices, um, guidance of religious authority. And then the last one, which I think most people, uh, this might seem counterintuitive, but but how people interact with traditional texts. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a perspective on how, how does this contextualization process happen through our research? Okay. Well, maybe let me talk a little bit just about kind of the the methodology of the book, a little bit of the, um, broadly speaking, and then the, how it actually emerged. So, um, as I mentioned, that you know, my original training was in journalism, and so in many ways, I, I often see myself as a uh, a journalist who's evolved into a media scholar who tends to pr- um, impersonate uh, a practical theologian from time to time. So, when I began this research project, what I began doing is a bunch of, of different case studies. So, looking at specific Christian groups, Jewish groups, Muslim groups, and how they approach technologies. Um, so doing anything from you know, participant observation, interviews, um, some surveys, 
and just trying to kind of map just a lot of different examples. And so uh, three years into the project, I kind of assembled, at that point, I think I had about 10 different case studies, and I kind of put, put them out, uh, printed them out, and looked at them actually on the floor of my room, and was trying to kind of say, you know, what do I have here? What, what trends am I seeing? And I thought what I would see is that, oh, there's a Muslim approach to, you know, new media technologies, or there's a Jewish approach or a Christian approach. And again, what I found is it wasn't so much their religious tradition, but the, the values and shape of the community that really dictated how they appropriated um, technologies. So, you know, uh, communities fell along a spectrum of either that they that they saw media as a conduit, so it was a neutral technology that could be accepted and used for religious purposes. On the other side of the spectrum, that they saw um, media, uh, media as a mode of knowing, and in, in the sense that media has its own value system, and that if you use it, it's going to seduce you or move you in that direction, so media is to be seen as suspicious and, and held at arm's length. Or some groups that saw media as a social institution where media is focused on people, and so people make choices and can culture it either in positive and problematic ways. And so as I began to kind of put these different groups into those kind of three categories, what I noticed is that there was a, a number of kind of layers of questioning that um, that came about that dictated how that basically if you could decode these and kind of um, re- reveal these, you began to see kind of a, a platform of what of how different communities approached media and technology. And these could become indicators to look at in the future how they might respond. And so basically this methodology emerged, which I call the religious social shaping of technology. And I think what you were referring to is kind of that first layer of that methodology. And um, the religious social shaping of technology um, comes out of the social shaping of technology tradition, which was first kind of talked about in sociology of technology and, and science and technology studies. And it basically was a response in many ways to the idea of technological determinism. Um, and technological determinism argues that media and technology is an all-powerful force in society and has um, a tendency to kind of seduce or um, co-opt the values and agendas of, the, of its users. And social shaping of technology basically tries to give the users more um, impetus and, and um, power and say that, that technologies are designed in certain ways and may have values in, that point it in certain directions, but the users have the option to either um, follow those, those trends and patterns or to renegotiate them in line with their, their beliefs. And so you know, scholars have used this in a lot of different ways to study different forms of media. And I found, especially for religious communities, this, this just made a lot of sense that I saw religious groups um, adopting technologies and often going through an interesting negotiation process and, and the questions they ask and how they approached it. So that kind of first level of questioning um, in the religious social shaping of technology is, it says that in order to understand how a religious community uh, approaches technology, first what you need to do is understand a few core things about the history and background of a community. And I often quote this to my students. Um, there's a saying on the top of the National Archive in, in D.C. that the past is prologue, study the past. And this it's really true here that if you look at kind of especially um, what I argue, if you look at how a group defines itself as a community and you know what's considered membership and who's part of that membership, if you then look at kind of the authority structure of the community of who sets the boundaries and how the boundaries are maintained, and then if you look at the um, community's relationship to text, especially you know any early negotiations when you see in history of moving from being a written-based culture to a text-based culture in printing, 
And often a lot of the debates that emerged around the printing press about concerns religious groups had about whether it was a positive or negative technology and its potential impact, those same arguments for, against, or to negotiate have been reenacted multiple times when, when we saw the launch of um, radio, television, and the Internet. And so th- I think that's what you were kind of getting at is that, you know, that basically – I'm trying to kind of set out this kind of methodological and theoretical framework that other scholars can use to unpack the communities that they're looking at and their response to technology. Yeah, I, uh, you've convinced me. It's, it sounds like a, a well-thought-out plan. So uh, you, uh, so for the next few chapters in the book, you kind of uh, take uh, the various aspects of this uh, religious social shaping approach and you kind of work through a number of examples um, in, in the first chapter, you talk about the role of history and tradition, and you look at a few case studies in relation to uh, mainly Orthodox Jewish communities. Um, can, can you kind of give us uh, a, a little bit of some of your experience in working in that community? Yes. So after I finished my PhD, um, I did some postdoc work in Scotland, and then I was also given the opportunity to do some postdoc work um, in Israel at the University of Haifa. And um, while I was there, um, I had an opportunity to talk to kind of both secular and religious students in the computer science department. Um, and this particular center was for the interdisciplinary study of computer science. And so over the course of the, that, those three months that I spent there, um, I began to collect a lot of different um, case studies and examples of, you know, different, um, you know, orth- especially different Orthodox communities responses to technology. So, you know, especially as an outsider, someone who, who didn't do Jewish studies work in my, in my graduate education, you know, I was just surprised at just the diversity of different, um, ultra-Orthodox communities there is in Israel. And just learning that, you know, the Gorks community's response to the internet was slightly different than the Bells community, which was different, again, than the Satmar or the Chabad or other groups. And so really trying to kind of, a lot of the case studies in, in, in that chapter are kind of looking at specific different groups and their negotiation. Um, and one of my favorite bits of the book was just, and this was, um, was a really good learning experience to me is that I got to do, spend some time with different Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox families um, over Shabbat and to kind of be, be with them as a, not just experience, you know, how they worship on their, on their holy day, but also just how, and through my observation, seeing how did technology especially frame a lot of their, the, um, the, the Melikos and Halakha rules of uh, those that experienced. And so, you know, I write a little narrative on just what I observed about not just how Shabbat defines the community and the family's relationship to faith, but also how technology and setting boundaries around technology become part of that process and the, the, that spiritual reflection of trying to keep the sacred and profane boundaries um, at bay. Yeah, and I, uh, I think you note this in the in that section too about that. If if someone's familiar with Shabbat, this might seem like you know mundane, you know, little facts about it. Um, but I think you do a really good job of of drawing out uh, the meaning of these these boundaries that are being created that in seemingly mundane acts. Um, I think it's something we can all kind of or should follow in our work. Um, in the next chapter, you, you talk about uh, community values and how, how community values shape the construction of uh, our relationship with technology. Um, and in this chapter, you focus a lot on uh, different Muslim communities. Um, 
what what I found interesting was you show both how uh, technology has become very important uh, in kind of sp- spreading new social movements, um, but also how there's a, a very proactive uh, uh, re- recognition of that we should often take t- time to escape from that uh, web of technology. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of the feeling of uh, th- this relationship to sh- social values and how that plays out? So the the next chapter that you're talking about, um, I'm highlighting the, what I call the second layer of the uh, religious social shaping of technology process. And the argument is that once you understand a little bit about the history and background of the community, especially related to community and authority of text, what you need to do is kind of focus it in on the local context. And so in the core values, I'm arguing for researchers to pay attention to what are the core values of this particular community and understanding that Communities are affected by the moment in history in which they live, as well as the cultural context. So, you know, Jew, Orthodox Jews in, in Israel will have slightly different agendas than possibly um, Jews that live in Brooklyn. And similarly, you know, Muslims in Detroit, Michigan are going to have a different negotiation than Muslims who live in Saudi Arabia or Jordan. And so the core values is highlighting kind of what seem to be the key motivational values of that community. Um, and how does that define their life, and how might those become markers then for community? Um, and how does that define their life, and how might those become markers then for how they see technology, how they approach technology, and as part of that kind of background framing? So um, I spent, t- again, when I, when I was doing some of my field work in, in the Middle East, I had time to kind of visit places like Jordan, um, later Turkey, and do some research um, at kind of different religious groups' um, approaches to technology. So I've done some work looking at, you know, Amr Khalid, who um, you know, is often described as kind of the Billy Graham of, of the, the Muslim world, and he's a very kind of dynamic young uh well, he was a businessman turned preacher turned kind of um, scholar. And looking at kind of some of the sermons that he's preached, especially aimed at young Muslims, um, to kind of convince them about how they should use technology um, in certain ways, especially for evangelism, for kind of giving alternative um, images of Muslims. And so looking at kind of just a very, pro, a very pro-technology discourse, but kind of through that tech, talk about technology, really emphasizing certain kind of practices and certain kind of, um, you know, Muslim beliefs, especially in, you know, the call to Ikra, to learn and using media to learn and to publicize that learning. Um, also, I got to spend time in Turkey um, doing some research on the, the Gulan movement. Um, which is very big and has many kind of especially centers in North America. Um, there's a kind of a uniquely kind of Turkish and kind of a pro- progressive Islamic approach uh, to kind of to Islam. And so looking at um, the, the Gulen movement has a lot of different um, newspapers and especially television sh- stations that are trying to kind of um, present, an, uh, again, alternative views of, of Islam and really trying to engage in modern society. So I got to talk to different journalists, news producers, and produced a little case study um, kind of looking at how kind of the beliefs and their kind of understanding of Islam has created a certain kind of media agenda and basically kind of um, pushed them to be really kind of um, uh, leaders in producing Muslim uh, media and content in certain parts of the world. So, yeah, again, just uh, the argument of looking at that it's important to look at certain core values as defining people's practices. And the core values often point to the kind of uh, practical steps 
religious groups make when it comes to choosing, selecting, and framing media. Yeah, and um, before we move on to kind of the next uh, focus here, you also bring in this case study about uh, this uh, uh, ad campaign from the Emirates uh, called Pause, It's Prayer Time, um, which I had never heard about, and I I looked it up. It it looked really interesting. could can you tell us kind of how the social values or core core values are being expressed through this, both the use of technology and kind of insistence to pause from technology? So the pause campaign was a really interesting case study um, because I actually uh, came across it while I was watching television and in Israel when I was doing some field work in, uh, in some Arab villages and sectors within Israel. And um, it was a campaign uh, aimed at really young people and trying to kind of communicate uh, the need and to call them to be have a religious lifestyle and engage in, in religious practices. So the first ad in the, in the um, campaign was really this kind of dark image and you saw basically in this dark room this young man working on a computer and then the call to prayer comes on and he ignores it and then the next thing you see is basically his parents with a coffin lowering it into the ground and so you know the message is kind of this idea that you know if you don't heed the call to prayer there will be extreme consequences uh, well this particular ad caused a lot of uproar you know there's lots of um uh, editorials wrote, written about it in different newspapers um, uh, in, in different parts of the Arab world, um, and and beginning to say that well, while the message to prayer call to prayer was was positive, it made a very negative um, understanding of technology and just something that maybe young people wouldn't um, adapt to well. So the, this campaign, um, which mer- uh, um, which emerged um, out of um, Saudi Arabia and um, then had another uh, several ads that came out over the next uh, couple of years, and many of them were aimed at coming out during uh, to be publicized during Ramadan. So the idea of you know encouraging religious practice is something on many people's minds. And my favorite one is a, a there's and which is a good correlator to the original one. There's basically you'll see two young guys sitting playing kind of an Xbox, you know. Um, video game, they're all into it, you know, tossing popcorn and really, you know, kind of yelling at the computer screen. And then the call to prayer sounds and you see the screen pause as in, you know, kind of like a freeze frame. And they literally in midair, they leave the popcorn bucket, they leave the um, computer console, they jump over the couch and you see them going to the mosque. And then we get a few shots of them in prayer time. And then they come back to that scene, which has been freeze frame, jump over the couch again, grab the console and the popcorn and go back to what they're doing. And so, and again, what we see in these ads is, is trying to communicate that you can still be part of modern culture. You can still engage with technology. That's not problem in the eyes of Islam, as long as it's not distracting you from your religious obligations and your, your commitment. And so I think, you know, this is very, uh, very interesting. You know, we'd often see this, this, you know, I'm not sure that we would even see an ad like this on public television in North America, though you could almost imagine some religious groups producing something like this. But it's very interesting that here, um, this campaign of really trying to kind of give a different narrative about technology, again, affirming the key values and practices of the faith, but at the same time uh, uh, saying that technology is something okay to be used and, and, and engaged with. Great, thanks. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about this, this third piece in your, your kind of methodology, this, this issue of negotiation? Um, what, what exactly does that uh, process play in the in, in understanding um, when religion meets new media. 
Well, the negotiation process is actually stage three of kind of four stages of questioning. So the nego- in negotiation, the argument is that if we understand the background and history and we've identified the core values and what kind of media values that might point to, then we can actually begin to uh, look at the negotiation process. Um, and, you know, this is oftentimes where many scholars start is just looking at how are they responding to technology now without providing that background and framing. And what I argue here is it's important to consider um, with the idea that religious communities usually don't completely reject media and technology to look at to what, what aspects of the technology do they accept because they see them as fulfilling certain religious goals or, or um, practices. What aspects of the technology do they reject or resist because they find problematic or they encourage um, values that are counter to the community? And then after that, you know, to what extent may a community innovate either their practice or the technology themselves? And so in that chapter, I'm looking at kind of both, you know, uh, groups that have kind of readily just embraced the technology and just basically used it for religious purpose, like as it is out of the box. Groups that have kind of resisted certain aspects and so that they've had, they've set boundaries for their community on how it should be used, though not completely banning it. And then groups that have actually done some innovative work to either change the platforms and technology themselves or just change the way people engage with them um, that are really innovative and really kind of rethinking the technology and the media. Um, I was hoping you could talk, um, you know, you mentioned this in the the earlier chapter, you gave kind of a brief history of how. Uh, religious communities have used technology and specifically online. And in this chapter, you kind of give us a, a case study of uh, what, what's, what are called cyber temples or cyber churches. Um, a lot of people probably don't know what this is or how this works. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what this is and maybe a little bit about what what is religious practice online look like? Sure. So in, in that, that chapter, I'm talking about um, one particular example I looked at, which is the Anglican Cathedral and Second Life. Um, and so Second Life is a, a virtual reality platform, if, if you're not aware from it. It looks similar to what you might see in some gaming platforms where people you know, log on to it. They create a virtual digital avatar or, or representation of themselves. And then the avatar can navigate and walk around and engage in a, dirt, a digital you know, environment. And in Second Life, it's divided into little islands so you can visit different islands. And one of those islands is Epiphany Island where the Anglican Cathedral Second Life um, uh, exists. And so in this chapter, I was looking at especially how religious groups innovate. Uh, I saw them as an example of innovating the technology. So here's a group of people that were um, uh, Christian in identity, met each other in Second Life, but they, but many of them either came from an Anglican background or just liked liturgical worship, and they were kind of frustrated the fact that there wasn't kind of this liturgical space for them in Second Life. And so they pooled their resources, got the Linden dollars together, and um, hired a virtual architect to build them a cathedral, which is kind of a cross between Durham and York Cathedral, and then basically created kind of a pastoral team of people that could run services um, in, in in this cathedral. And so they, one thing that was important for them is to really keep a strong Anglican identity, even though not everyone in the leadership of the of the, the cathedral per se was Anglican. So, you know, they had discussions about how do we use the prayer book? How do we, you know, what kind of artifacts and visual architecture need to be there? So it has this um, Anglican authenticity. And then as they began to kind of run their services and get you know, kind of a, a following of people coming for whether it be services or 
prayer and Bible studies, they began to see that, well, maybe if we, we really want to embrace this Anglican identity, but we, we kind of, um, we, there was a need to kind of get legitimacy offline. And so they began to build bridges between, you know, local Anglican ministers and, and bishops. And this raised a whole lot of different issues because, you know, the Anglican church thinks in terms of geography. They have their parishes and there's certain bishops that have territorial, you know, oversight for pastorally and theologically for certain areas. So what do you do, um, in a, in cyberspace, so to speak, you know, do you need a bishop of you know virtual worlds or cyberspace in order to oversee what's happening? So in the, uh, the negotiation I talk about is um, in this negotiation between the online and the offline community. So how do you build identity? And talk about you know they, they had many face to face meetings between um, members of the community as well as virtual meetings. Um, even one or two of the ministers in the virtual cathedral went through theological training to actually get the offline credentials to kind of give more validity to the, the virtual cathedral. Um, and you also saw that, you know, that um, one of the uh, bishop, uh, the bishop of Guilford uh, for a time became kind of the oversight bishop for this kind of initiative. And again, trying to build legitimacy and talk about is- issues of ecclesiastical law. And so, you know, we see kind of, you know, negotiation um, can take many different forms. It can be changing the technology, but it can be just, you know, how do we bridge the online and the offline? And you know, this was important to the extent that, you know, for many people, the online is so much embedded in their everyday lives. You know, spending time in this cathedral, while it didn't maybe substitute for their offline faith commitment or involvement in community, it was a vital part of their community. So to see it be framed as secondary or something outside their tradition or their identity was highly problematic. And we see a lot of interesting negotiations, especially when we think about the Internet of people trying to build these bridges now between online practice and offline communities. Um, And as the online is now impacting the offline and offline ways of being and theology and practices are getting transported online. Um, Another really interesting case you you look at in this negotiation chapter um, is the use of of computer programs and and apps, uh, specifically by Muslims. Uh, But, you know, this is something that's... uh, booming for all religious communities. Can can you talk about the negotiation process here? Yeah, I mean, one one of the things, again, um, there's been a lot of talk about app culture, especially in the last couple of years, but even before we had smartphones, we had, you know, people developing religious apps, whether they be kind of the wallpapers for, like, uh, the goddess Ganesha to, you know, as a devotional kind of object on your phone to, you know, there's been um, Kibla indicators for for a long time, so... um, on programs that you could download on the internet or your phone to help you find where Mecca is, depending no matter what geography you find yourself in, and like send reminders of when the calls to prayer are for. So I in that section I kind of again I'm, I'm interviewing people and interviewing kind of in the 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 pre smartphone era some people that created these apps and looking at their motivations and looking at how basically they saw that the the internet was a way to kind of bring their spirituality into more of a twenty four seven reality so you know creating tools to help people you know whether it's to you know do a virtual um, 
uh, pray the rosary virtually, you know, or or remember the times for prayer, or doing online devotionals and using cell phone technology to do that. And so, again, especially within Muslim groups, it, again, it was the, this kind of the technology can augment our reality and the call to learn, the call to pray, the call to acknowledge the oneness of of Allah in our everyday lives. Um, and um, lots of interesting innovations have now been adapted for you know mobile platform, uh, other mobile platforms and smart platforms. Platforms, but they have a longer you know, um, heritage than we often kind of talk about in in technology studies. Um, now, I guess the final the corner of your your methodology is this uh, this issue of discourses, um, and you you talk about prescriptive, officializing, and validating uh, discourses. Can, can you tell us what what how this piece fits in here and uh, why we need to recognize this part? So um, what I argue in the, the last layer of the religious social shaping of technology approach is that it's important not just to pay attention to how people use technology, but how they talk about technology. Because often the narratives they produce, whether they be guidelines about the technology or sermons espousing certain values or framings of technology, they tell us as much about the community and who they want to be in contemporary society or who they're trying to project they are in contemporary society as they do about the technologies themselves. And especially scholars in, in, in the social shaping technology often um, recognize that, you know, mo- most people focus in their research on, you know, how people, you know, like within a family and organization community negotiate the technology, what they do, but that discourse and talk about technology is an important layer of investigation that many scholars overlook. And so that's why I kind of felt it was important here. And so, you know, in, in, in this um, chapter, I, I, I do anything from looking at kind of um, the, the narratives produced in kind of popular books um, from different communities about the Internet to looking at official documents and statements from different organizations such as the Catholic Church or the United Methodist Church or reports by the Anglican Church about what they've said about the technology in relation to their community. And then also doing some discourse analysis of kind of key leaders in different other movements. And so arguing that if we pay attention to, you know, what leaders say, what organizations, institutions say, um, it, the, these narratives do two things. One is it, um, p- part of the reason they talk about technology is um, an external motivation. So in many respects, it's kind of PR our work. You know, if we basically show you this is how we use technology, what we believe it is, we're basically showing that you we're engaged with modern culture, that we're not backward, that we're not disengaged. And it's giving you kind of a, a, a more um, culturally engaged um, uh, profile of our religion, our community. And so, again, these narratives do a lot of PR work and they also kind of highlight to act people outside the community. This is who we are. These are our values. This is why we do what we do. And then secondarily, they play a very important internal role because they're basically, again, as they're kind of proclaiming this is who we are, they're reaffirming that to the community and reminding them this is what our theology is. This is what our, our, our motivational values are. This is what our call is. And so, you know, they should know we are Christians or Jews or Muslims by the way we use our technology. And so this internal and external narrative become important to kind of unpacking groups' um, relationship technology and also give um, scholars uh, a way to kind of look at um, two, like two different um, areas in which to explore some of uh, kind of um, the what I, I call the um, religious apologetic or technological apologetic that communities produce related to media. Now, um, 
you, you give us a great kind of case study where you really apply your whole your whole methodology kind of in full. Um, and this is a, a revolving around this topic of a kosher cell phone. Um, can, can you kind of lay out how this methodology works uh, in this particular case? You know, what are the concerns of Orthodox Jews in relation to cell phone technology? How are these negotiated within the community? How are they framed afterwards? So, um, so just a little background. The, the kosher cell phone r- emerged in the early uh, mid two thousands, and it was actually when I was doing my postdoc work in Israel where I first kind of heard about the idea. It wasn't even in two thousand three four. wasn't even uh, um, hadn't even been created yet. But there was concerns in the ultra-relax communities, and there was a lot of editorials being written about the dangers of the cell phone, both to kind of uh, basically distract people from religious study, to bring secular content into the community, and because it was a not easily monitored technology, you know, there was concern that people might be led into sin, secular activities through their cell phones. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a several year period of kind of collecting newspaper articles, doing um, participant observation, spending time talking to phone designers and even in kind of different ultra-relax neighborhoods in Israel over several different trips to kind of, you know, document. And then at the same time, I had been doing some of this work, um, the, this religious social shaping immersion, I began to see that um, this really nicely mapped onto what I was noticing so that, you know, you can't understand kind of why the kosher cell phone emerged which, and the kosher cell phone basically was uh, their reconditioned um, first generation cell phones that have no text messaging capabilities um, and no uh, access to the internet um, and they've also, you know, there's high, either either um, Cell signals are blocked or high penalties are, are um, put on them if you try to use them over Shabbat, which is a time where you're not supposed to make fire which is um, or uh, electricity during that time period. And then they have a special symbol on the front that basically um, a group of rabbis that hadn't interacted, um, hadn't um, collaborated before, um, gathered to become equivalent to a, a, a religious council of, of rabbis to oversee communication. And so their kind of official symbol was put on the phone to say, this is a kosher cell phone, it's acceptable, it meets um, the concerns of the community. So this kosher cell phone, you know, you can't understand how that emerged in the mid-2000s if you don't understand kind of the background of the Orthodox community, their relationship to text, the importance of rabbis and, and, and setting, especially for ultra-Orthodox groups, the boundaries of the community and, and, and maintaining um, uh, kind of moral um, uh, edicts and, and um, uh, guidance for the community. And then if you don't look at, understand kind of the, the, the social values that, you know, that, that this community is trying to keep the sacred and secular boundaries really strong. Um, and, you know, they, they have this phrase about drawing the fence tight around the Torah, not wanting to lead them into, you know, sin or um, uh in the community. So these kind of things become important to understand that why they would see that the the, um, cell phone was problematic. And then once you understand that background, then you can look at, well, what, what was, what did they find um, problematic about the technology? Well, it was the fact that in Israel, there was a lot of these mass text messaging um, companies that were sending secular texts to anyone. Um, And so secular content was coming in through the phone. There was also concern about the internet was really still a debated technology. And so having Easy internet access was seen as problematic. And also there were some economic issues as well. So those were the problems. But people began to see that, you know, for business and for emergency purposes and living in such a wired place like Israel, you know, this, rejecting the cell phone completely 
was was problematic for especially doing business work and in emergencies. So what was the answer? It was to innovate it to basically this this uh, the council of rabbis that had um, gotten together hired a lawyer that went to do negotiations with all the major cell phone companies and finally Motorola in Israel agreed to kind of create this cell phone. Um, they created these you know, these, these um, stripped down cell phones. They set up uh, special centers in, in most ultra relaxed neighborhoods in Israel and then they trained people how to sell them and created special calling plans so that if you called other people in that had kosher phones in the kosher network which was marketed by its own kind of area code, the calls were really cheap and if you used a, a kosher cell phone to try to, to call any number outside that network, it was really expensive. So they created this really interesting, you know, a negotiation strategy. And then by, you know, I spent time reading just the editorials as well as a lot of the Pashkavilim, the political posters, talking about um, the kosher cell phone. And anytime, oftentimes you go into a, um, a cell phone store and you would see actually like a poster and it would say, you know, which rabbis have, uh, you know, basically blessed this particular, you know, cell phone and especially this particular carrier of the cell phone to say that, you know, hey, there, that the, the, that this kosher cell phone is what you should use if you are really truly a member of a community. So owning the phone became part of your religious identity and affirming the authority of the rabbi as well as the values of the community. So it's, it's just been a fascinating and, you know, the, the impact of that, that, um, rabbinical group um, to kind of create this um, kosher cell phone. They had so much success that they've actually done um, some campaigns and kind of set some boundaries for different ultra-relaxed communities related to the internet, um, commissioned a, uh, a kosher Blackberry and other technologies and become a really important part of kind of setting communication and technology policy or at least guidelines for many different ultra-relaxed communities in Israel. Yeah, it was a, a fascinating uh, chapter. Really, it was uh, great to read. Um, so, Heidi, wh- how how has the religious social shaping approach been received? This book came out in 2010. Um, from what you've told us, you've been working on this for a very long time, uh, and you're you're very well known, and uh, so people people are obviously taking this very seriously. H- how do you feel like it's being received? Um, I think it's been received quite positively. Um, I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of people have kind of cited the work in relation to kind of some of the findings in, in religion and new media studies. But what, what I find most exciting is when I hear stories of kind of graduate students, you know, scholars, and people actually using this methodology for their work. Um, and it's not just people in um, you know, media studies and communication, which is my own field. I've heard from a lot of people in religious studies, a few people in anthropology, um, even in, in theology that have kind of found this a very helpful framework. And that's, I think, is important because, you know, there's been a lot of work in the social shaping technology, but there's not a, a lot of defined kind of methodological um, frameworks that have been um, produced to kind of show h- how do I actually use this um, perspective about um, the social engagement with technology and kind of um, uh, work it out in, in um, my own research work. And so I think, I think people are finding it helpful and uh, I'll be, you know, I hope it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years down the road um, if, you know, how much spread it has and what kind of influence and impact it has on broader thinking about um, sociology and technology and religion and technology. Yeah. And uh, so you, you mentioned uh, just then that, you know, you're kind of, uh, betwixt between these various fields, um, and uh, another book that just came out, uh, which you edited, this digital Re- religion understanding religious practice in new media worlds, 
um, it sounds like this is really a product of this this idea of uh, interdisciplinarity and uh, you know collaboration. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how that project developed and what what that project's about. So um, the book Digital Religion: Understanding Religious Practice in New Media Worlds um, was. For me, it was a, a post-tenure project. I, I just put in my tenure packet at a, at a research one university and kind of you know felt the push to kind of keep going in my research, but um, kind of being between kind of um, focused kind of um, studies. And um, uh, my, um, my editor from Routledge actually approached me and said, hey, we're looking for someone who could kind of do a book that gives us an overview of what we've learned about religion and the Internet and covers the five major worlds religions. And so, you know, I thought for a minute and I said, well, you know, if you want me to cover the Asian religions and new religious movements, which is really outside my specialization area, it's going to take me five to seven years to kind of get caught up. But if you're willing to, instead of it being a monograph, it being an edited collection, you know, I could get all my friends involved and all the people that I, you know, interact with on these different areas. And I could probably give it to you in two years. So, um, so they, they said, sounds good. And so the next thing I knew I was being, I was charged with this, this task. Um, and the one, the key thing is, again, there's no, um, it's because the study of new media, religion, digital culture is such a new area. There's not a lot of, um, books out there period on, on the, on focus on this topic, let alone books that could be used as, you know, a textbook or introduction. So my remit was to basically create something that could be both, um, a scholar could pick up and very quickly through reading the book, get an overview of the field, the literature, the key issues and questions, as well as something that might be able to be used as a textbook in undergrad or graduate classes. So I spent a lot of time, um, in, and while drafting the book, of really kind of trying to think about how what what would be the best way to frame it. You know, would it be you know d- looking at different religions approach to media? Would it be looking at you know different kind of cultural contexts? Um, what would be the, the themes? And so. Um, I, at the same time, I had been starting um, what's called the Network for New Media, Religion, and Digital Culture Studies, um, which is kind of an online resource center for scholars doing this kind of work. And I had was started to talk with my advisory board about, you know, hey, what kind of, how would a, a book be structured in a way that would be useful for you? And so, um, uh, from the, those conversations, interactions, um, the book emerged, and we identified um, kind of together, and especially, you know, I have to kind of thank, um, you know, Greg Greaves and uh, Chris Helen and Mia Luvheim, who really were key sounding boards for me in the project. Um, that you know, the key, so the, we identified seven key themes in the study of religion, new media, and they are, you know, h- um, how is ritual enacted and defined online? How is identity performed and constructed in digital spaces? What is new about the forms of community we see emerging online and how does that relate to offline communities? Um, we have a chapter on authority and looking at kind of the extent to which uh, the Internet both challenges and powers different actors in relation to religious authority. We have a chapter on authenticity that looks at um, uh, just debates on, you know, is religious practice online authentic and can a, a, a digital or virtual space be you know consecrating a way that religious um, activities and discourse are acceptable there and then the last chapter I was looking at just how is our understanding of religion 
being changed or modified or just extended by the digital culture. So there's seven key chapters, which are kind of critical lit reviews by basically people, at least I consider the leaders in some of these areas in the field. And then I went around to contact um, people who are involved in the network on the advisory board and other kind of key emerging scholars to give case studies that illustrate um, those seven areas. And then the last section of the book is really focused on some three special topics of um, uh, ethics, uh, theology, and uh, theoretical frameworks for studying religion and media. And so I think it's a, a, a good collection. Again, like I said, you know, if, if people are wanting to know, you know, what, what people have studied in the field, you know, it's especially when I get emails from graduate students, it's the place that I point them to kind of give them that overview. Now, as an editor um – what what hard choices did you have to make? Were there uh, themes that you wanted to include that you weren't able to or uh, things like that that you feel like you didn't have the space to, to, to really flesh out or – I think one of the challenges is that, you know, um, even though kind of, you know, the study of kind of religion and the Internet really emerged in the mid-1990s, so we have, you know, close to, you know, 17 years of research and scholarship in the field. So we do know a lot of things, and especially themes like identity, community, ritual have been really well researched. But there's a lot of questions that we had left um, that haven't been as explored as in-depth. And there's a lot of religious groups and traditions um, that, that haven't been as, as um, explored. So it, so the key thing was, like, you know, there was some of these themes, it was easy to see, okay, these are things that we know a lot about. There's other themes like authority that only a few scholars like myself, Pauline Chong, um, Chris Hellander, have started to really kind of give serious time to. And so um, it was easy to see that, well, we need a chapter on that, but obviously the research and, and the literature is not as extensive in those areas. And also, you know, when trying trying to kind of represent different religious traditions, there's been a lot of work done on um, Christianity and kind of pagan new religious movements. And that was because in the early 1990s, you know, the Internet is based in more of a North American context, so the dominant religion gets studied, and then also the novel context that people can't get access to offline, they could get access to online. But there were certain um, religions, like there's not a lot of work being done on Hinduism in the Internet. And so finding kind of, you know, scholars that could actually kind of that have done substantive work on that was difficult as well as um, finding people who'd done extensive work on Judaism, um, what was difficult. So um, I think this is really good because it shows kind of just not just the strengths of the field, but also kind of points to some areas that, that we need further conversation, um, but um, highlighting the work of scholars who are, are trying to have that conversation and push it forward. Now, um, what what do you see for the future of this this field? Is there a wish list of uh, of subjects or traditions or things that you you hope to see happening in the near future? Yeah, I think you know um, there needs to be more work on, on Asian religions and, and the internet. And there's you know. The, People like um, Greg Grieve and uh, Christopher Helen, Pauline Chong, and some others are kind of doing some work, especially on you know Buddhism, but you know Hinduism and some of the other um, you know Asian religions such as Taoism, you know, are not, are not as um, fully explored. And so I'd like to see you know people doing more work. I think there's also a need to expand again interdisciplinarily and and you know looking at some kind of major. Um, 
you know, more work on in, in a feminist studies perspective and even just bringing people in psychology of religion and um, political framings of religion into the discourse, um, I think will, will be important. Um, and, and like I said before, there's, again, we know a lot about religion online, but there's still a lot of, of questions that need to be asked. And I think interdisciplinary is the way to go, you know, because every discipline has its strengths regarding methodology and theory and just ways that they approach different topics. And I know the, the, the research projects I've valued the most is when I've worked with somebody outside my area, like someone from Asian studies or someone from um, Islamic studies or someone from, you know, psychology, because they challenge the way that I see and approach a particular question and topic and as much richness and depth. And I think especially, you know, um, that religion in, in many ways still times can be um, sidelined in the academy. Um, and this book and a lot of my work is really trying to show that, you know, religion is a dominant part of, of, of culture, not just popular culture, but a globalized culture. And that by studying religion in the Internet, we actually began to be, see not just how people practice religion and are, how religious groups are impacted by new technologies, but many of those trends and many of the trends highlighting this book map onto the larger findings that are being noted in media studies and Internet studies. And so that um, showing religion can actually become a microcosm for understanding shifts in culture in general. So that, you know, it's, it's not just a subfield. It's not just something, a novel approach. It actually is essential for us having, getting a full picture of how digital cultures and technologies are changing our globalized network society. Yes, very well said. Uh, Heidi, this has been great. Um, before I let you go, though, um, we would love to hear what's what – is in your future horizons. What what kind of projects are you working on or what kind of things are coming down the road for you? Well, just, uh, two, uh, two things on highlight. One is I just want to put a plug in for the Network for New Media Religion and Digital Culture Studies. If you're doing research in this area or you want to do research in this area or you just want to find out you know, what are the latest studies, events, um, books that are out there, um, just go to digitalreligion.tamu.edu. Um, and anyone can use the site. It has an interactive bibliography. It has a blog with book reviews and event reviews as well as kind of news items. Um, and also if you're a, a person working in the field, whether a student or an established scholar, you can join the network and then you can interact and share resources um, through the, the website as well. So a great place. And it's a place where I'm trying to put a lot of energy to kind of not just build my own work, but really build the field and, and, see, uh, and resource you know, a lot of people in their, their work and pursuits. Um, but my own research right now, I'm really interested in the question of authority online and you know, this dichotomy that early days of um, the Internet, people began to kind of claim how the Internet was going to undermine all kinds of institutional authority, including religious leaders and authority. But um, in the last five to seven years, as religious organizations and leaders have become more um, media savvy and, and understanding the power of digital media, we see that many groups are actually leveraging new technologies to either assert their influence or regain some of that lost authority. And so in that kind of dichotomy of, you know, is the Internet, you know, empowering or challenging religious authority, I'm looking at um, what I call religious digital creatives. So either people who have a technology background that are bringing their skills and passions to producing, you know, apps and religious resources online, or people that are kind of uh, leveraging 
social media, you know, bloggers, um, people that are, uh, you know, doing religious devotionals on Instagram. So people that are doing creative work, but with a religious agenda purpose at, at heart and how those people relate to, um, their religious community and institutions and how especially re- denominational and uh, religious organizations are responding to that work. So, um, that's, uh, I, I was on somatic last year and so I've, I've done a whole series of interviews and I'm just now starting to do some of the theoretical reflection on, you know, what, and especially trying to answer the question um, in a practical way, what do religious digital creatives need to understand about the, their religious community and institutions um, in order to kind of be more effective and engaged? And how, what do religious institutions need to understand about digital creative work and um, people in order to kind of not see them as competing forces, but actually uh, trying to help them uh, yeah. do the same mission in just different ways and routines? So. Watch this space. <laughs> Hopefully, in the next you know six to months to a year, some um, I'll be producing some articles related to that. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Heidi Campbell about her book When Religion Meets New Media, which was published by Routledge Press in 2010. Thanks again for listening.